for the opportunity to be able to, to speak tonight. Um, what I'm going to be doing is not sharing a traditional sermon, you know, because normally when sermons are shared, you know, the, you're not used to being able to challenge a, um, a, a sermon or speaker unless they invite you, as Bevan often does, um, so that you can ask questions. Um, and so a few weeks ago, you know, given what is currently happening in the Middle East, um, I was able to, to share a sermon and a talk, you know, around um, seeking to come to an understanding as to um, what exactly is happening there. You know, because like many things um, within, within the Christian life and experience, uh, many of these things are often contested, and people have different ideas and different opinions about them, you know, and so what is the thing that we need to believe? And in fact, in many churches and in some circumstances, there would be people who would come and, and they would say, well, this is what you need to believe because I believe it. Um, I have got particular beliefs about this, but sometimes I think um, that it might be better for people to be exposed to different ways of thinking about something, something that we might have traditionally believed, and then to be exposed to other Christians and the way in which they see it, so that we can kind of contemplate these things and to say, well, the thing that I believe, um, or that I have believed, um, you know, is that actually the best way of doing it? Um, and so I was um, invited to go and speak at another church, and I basically took that message and I turned it around a little bit, you know, because they wanted the emphasis to come from another angle. Um, and so I thought since I had that opportunity, and some had requested because they had not, um, they were not present there or listened to it online, um, I want to share something about that. So I've entitled um, the talk I'm going to be giving this evening, and I'm going to be inviting you, you know, if you have any questions off afterwards, you know, to ask, ask these questions for clarification, and you are going to be most welcome to, to disagree with me um, on these things, because I'm going to be sharing some thoughts that you might not have heard of before. Um, and so the, 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 the title of what I'm going to be sharing tonight is The Middle East Conflict, Are We Now um, at the End Time? Um, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen individuals like that, you know, with a sandwich board sometimes. You know, I've sometimes traveled around. I've been amazed. You still, you still see people, you know, walking with those sandwich boards or with a sign saying, the end is nigh. In other words, you know, we're now about to face the apocalypse, the end of the world. You know, and so events sometimes happen, and one of it is often the conflict in the Middle East, you know, which results in people asking the question, is Jesus now going to return? Are we going to be seeing some of the things, you know, spoken of in the Bible, the emergence of the Antichrist, you know, for example, and who exactly is that Antichrist? Um, and so how are we to understand these things? And so I'm going to, what I'm going to be sharing with you, you know, are different perspectives, and, you know, when we talk about different perspectives, especially in the area of Christian theology, you know, Christian theology has sometimes got its own language, its own jargon, <laughs> and so some of that I'm going to be sharing with you, you know, so these might be terms you might have heard before and wondered what exactly is that, um, or you might have never heard of it before, um, and if you haven't, you know, then well, I'm introducing you to it, but hopefully I'm going to be able to explain to you these different terms because they actually represent different perspectives as to how people come to their conclusions, you know, and a lot of this are sometimes 
sometimes very popular conclusions. You know, you read, um, you know, certain Christian literature. You watch certain um, popular Christian television stations. You know, there are these speakers that sometimes appear on television, and they speak on these things, and they will give you their particular perspective, you know. And some of them will use these terms, and some of them will not. One of that is, you know, this actually brings us into um, a, an area within Christian theology that is called eschatology. Eschatology. You know, it's not the study of sausages from escort. Um, eschatology is a word that means the study of the end times. And, the, and we will be coming from the Christian perspective, the Christian study of the end times. Because the word eschatology actually also appears in other religions. In fact, there's even a scientific eschatology, you know, as to how scientists believe from their perspective, you know, the universe will come to an end. Um, and so this study of eschatology covers that, but it also covers other areas. You know, what happens when a person dies? You know, where exactly do you go to? What happens to your soul, you know? So eschatology, that particular study, tends to cover those areas as well. But for tonight, we're only going to be focusing our attention upon um, eschatology as the study of what actually happens right at the end of the world. And this teaching is, is, is chiefly based upon certain books of the Bible, so certain books of the Bible as a whole is seen as, you know, eschatological books, books that are teaching us about the end times, because some of the language there is quite obvious um, in the end times, in that day, in that hour, you know, words like that that the Bible uses often raises, you know, these kinds of ideas. So the book of Revelation is obviously one of those books, the book of Daniel, the book of Zechariah, but then there are also other biblical passages, you know, in some of the Gospels, um, we have some of these passages being mentioned, like in Matthew chapter 24, um, a, a well-known um, um, passage, um, in, and in some of the New Testament letters, you know. So I've listed there some of the, the more popular ones, the ones that is known, but there are also other books of the Bible in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that tends to cover um, this, um, this, this area or gives us information about it. But, you know, as one would come to expect, you know, that when one approaches these passages and you read them, it becomes very clear that people often have different perspectives or different interpretations of these passages that then informs the conclusions they come to as to the circumstances of the end times, including whether the current conflict in the Middle East, you know, is actually um, an indication that the end is coming. And so one is able to often, you know, kind of hashtag a lot of the, the, the jargon around this, you know, the terms around this, like second coming and rapture and the antichrist and the millennium. Um, that's the word we're going to be particularly looking at. You know, there's others that one could add there, like hashtag Armageddon. But if I were to use that one, you're going to be thinking about, about the Bruce Willis movie. Um, but it's not that one. It's a different one. Yeah. So, so there's a lot of these terms, you know, that often come up from time to time. Um, that kind of is an indication you are dealing in this area called eschatology. Right, now, here is going to be a load of information, you know. But let me quickly just sketch to you the four different ways in which Christians like you and me, when they come to these Bible passages and they read it, how they tend to interpret it. Okay, so the first way, there are basically four major ways in which people, what we might call interpretive models, that when they take all those passages, um, the way in which they will interpret it, and that often leads them to particular conclusions. So 
the first one is called the preterist approach or preterism. You might never have heard that word before. Um, save that one maybe for crossword puzzle or for your next um, trivial pursuit. Yeah, but anyway, um, the, the, the preterist approach reads all those Bible passages and say, when there are end-time prophecies that occurs within those, those, those Bible books or Bible passages, we believe that those things have already happened. So from where we stand, those things were things that were being predicted in terms of the future of the people in the Bible, but it's in our past. So they're all long gone, they're all past. They might not be helpful for helping us to understand what the future is going to be all about. The second approach is called an historicist approach. You know, this is where most people um, actually tend to hang out. And they will say, when one reads Bible prophecies concerning the end times, um, one could actually see, reading from the Old Testament into the New Testament, that many of the people or the events described there are actually connected to specific people and specific events in the past, but also sometimes into the future. You know, in which if you can get your head around this, you know, if you believe in time travel or not. <laughs> you know, sometimes some of these prophecies we need to understand were in the future of the people back then, but in our past. But some of these prophecies that they prophesied was not only in their future, but our future as well. Because obviously, Jesus hasn't come back a second time. Because if he has, I think there might be people running around claiming to be Jesus who might belong in a very special place. You know, but, that, but that's basically what we call an historicist approach. The third one is a futurist approach that says it kind of shifts the prophecies and say, well, look, most of those prophecies in Old and New Testament are actually in everybody's future, um, even our future. They are still to happen, and therefore we need to pay attention to them because these things are going to happen, and if we're not aware of them, we might find ourselves in trouble. And then finally, there is what is called the idealistic or idealism approach that says, look, if you take all of these prophecies, um, what, what they actually represent is symbolic ideas, symbolic people, symbolic times, etc., of both positive and negative things. You know, because some of the prophecies, a lot of them are doom and gloom, but other prophecies are actually prophecies of hope. I mean, think... Think about living in the new heavens and the new earth, you know. I mean, that, 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 that is going to be wonderful. However, if you're into surfing, you're going to be in trouble because there's no longer any sea, says the book of Jerusalem, uh, says, says the book of Revelation, you know, about the new Jerusalem, if you've read that passage properly, you know. However, what does sea actually mean in the book of Revelation, you know? And so the idealistic approach is, well, but the sea is symbolic. It's symbolic of something. It's not a, a commentary that there isn't going to be any ocean or any water for you to kind of um, play in. Yeah. So um, those are the four major interpretive approaches. And therefore, as a result of that, you know, especially when it comes to something that occurs in the book of Revelation um, called the millennium, um, there have therefore been four main views about that millennium, you know, because um, the whole conflict in the Middle East within some of these views play a very, very important role. So let me quickly explain um, these views to you, you know, and so here it is a mouthful, but I'm going to try and explain it in the form of a picture that's going to be following from this. So the first view is what is called historic premillennialism. The second perspective is what is called dispensational premillennialism. 
Um, the third perspective is called amillennialism or amillennialism, you know, depending on how you want to pronounce that letter. Um, and the last one is called postmillennialism. Now, what is that all about? Well, the best way, as I said, to maybe try and explain this is in the form of a continuum, a continuum of time. And basically, what you have over there, if you follow my laser pointer, um, you have the four different views illustrated that seeks to put into place where all of these events might actually happen. Um, on the left-hand side, you will see all of them start, you know, with the first coming of Christ. You know, we know when, when that happened, the whole Christmas story. And right at the end of time, there is eternity when Jesus is going to return. However, each of these perspectives will place some of those um, things, like, for example, the rapture, um, or the tribulation, or the coming of the Antichrist, um, within, somewhere within that timeline. So the first position is called historical premillennialism, or sometimes called post-tribulational premillennialism. Now, the tribulation is actually a description of a great time of suffering, that people is going to be going through, and it's spoken of in the book of Revelation. So where does that actually fit in? Um, because many people are afraid, you know, are we going to go through it, or are we going to be missing it? You know, are we going to be able to do, to do a bit of a detour around the tribulation? Um, so what the first position says is they interpret the passages to say, well, there's going to be a millennium, a physical millennium, in other words, a thousand-year period in which we're going to be reigning with Jesus on this earth. But that is going to be preceded by the second coming of Christ, and leading up to that is going to be a tribulation that everybody is going to be going through. And then at the end of that thousand-year period, there's going to be a last judgment. So the historical view says, basically, there's going to be after the first coming of Christ, a period of time that's going to be leading up to a tribulation before the second coming of Jesus. Then there's going to be a thousand-year period in which Jesus is going to reign. We're going to be reign, reigning with him, and then the Lord's judgment is going to be taking place. So that's the one perspective. Now, there's a variation of that, which is called dispensational premillennialism. And in fact, most Christians for a long time have adopted this particular position, and you're going to, and you're going to be seeing why. Um, and basically, now, yeah, things get a little bit more complicated, you know, and so there's the first coming of Christ, there's the millennium, a literal millennium, after which there's going to be a last judgment. But now, Jesus kind of either comes a second and a third time, or Jesus appears, and there's this thing called a rapture that takes place. Other people disappear, um, and then, you know, one gets taken, and the other one gets left behind, um, so that the church gets raptured secretly by Jesus. Jesus kind of comes a second time, but it doesn't actually come. Um, then there's a tribulation period, and then the second coming takes place with the church, and then there's the millennium, and then there's the Lord's judgment. Um, this is actually the most popular and widely held position by many, by many Christians. Um, there's a third alternative called post-millennialism. Um, there's actually a very small section within Christian churches and denominations that holds to this. But basically, post-millennialism says there's going to be a millennium sometime in the future, but the second coming and the last judgment takes place after the millennium. That's why the word post 
as in post toasties. It used to be toast, it's no longer toast, it's now post. No. <laughs> the last one is amillennialism, which sees everything as symbolic. Some of you don't know what post toasties is, I guess. <laughs> date, date some of us, yeah, yeah. Okay, um, so it's amillennialism says, this whole idea of the millennium is not actually a reference to a literal thousand-year period. It's a symbolic period that covers the whole and the entire period between the first and the second coming of Christ so that, you know, issues of tribulation, that's all going to take place in over there, but then there's going to be a second coming and there's going to be a last judgment. Now, it is in this particular view over here that the whole issue of Israel becomes a very, very important idea um, and becomes, you know, kind of this major sign as to when the end times is going to be taking place. So both of those are actually dispensational views. And just by the way, I'm going to talk a little bit about dispensationalism. You know, there have been many different variations that has emerged out of that idea. But basically it is here within pre-tribulational dispensational premillennialism. If you can say that, you'll get a 10 rand. <laughs> the whole restoration of Israel is seen as vitally important because when Israel is going to um, be restored, that is when we know that the second coming is going to take place because there are certain passages like Matthew chapter 4 that seems to indicate, that seems to give us a much, much more clearer idea as to when Jesus is going to be coming back. So this whole scheme, dispensational theology, was actually developed. It's not actually um, a, an old idea. It's actually a relatively new idea. A, a man by the name of J.N. Darby, you know, he looks like he might be a member of the Adams family or something like that. Um, but yeah, he was, he, he, he was, a, he, he was a teacher within um, a group of um, churches called the Plymouth Brethren, very conservative group of people, um, and he started reading the Bible and started studying the Bible and started seeing things in the Bible that he felt could legitimately be used to interpret the Bible. And that became known as um, this whole idea of, you know, you read prophecy, you read the book of Revelation um, as seeing God working in history in different periods of time called dispensations. So he's called the father of dispensational theology. That has become very popularized in the late 1960s and early 1970s through that man um, by the name of Hal Lindsey. Um, you know, he's, I think what, what drew me to him was that his surname sounds like my name. Um, and I then discovered, you know, that, that if there's anything to believe about the end times, you must read him. And, and I, I happened to discover that my father had most of his books on his bookshelf, so I read them all. And they were fascinating, you know, the late great planet Earth. Satan is alive and well and living on planet Earth. Um, um, so that's the late great planet Earth. And then there was another one, which, you know, now you're going to be able to tell how old I am. I was in high school in the 1980s, and he had this book that came out that was entitled The 1980s Countdown to Armageddon. Ooh. And I had a teacher in high school that was all caught up in this, and she was convinced that what is happening now in the 1980s, based upon what Hal Lindsay is saying, that Jesus is coming soon. Do you know why? 
Because there's a passage in Matthew chapter 24 where Jesus says to his disciples when they ask him, Lord, when is this thing going to happen? He says to them, I assure you, this generation will not pass until these things happen. And so Helen's asked the question, this generation, who's that generation? What is a biblical generation? Well, generally speaking, a biblical generation is seen to be about 40 years. Some argue 30 years, some argue 50 years. Most are agreed that they seem to say it is 40 years. Now, when are, the, when are those things going to happen? Or when did they happen? And he tied a lot of the events described prophetically in Matthew chapter 24 to the year 1948, which was the founding of the modern state of Israel. And he said, wow, that then has to be the starting point. So add 40 years to 1948, and you get 1988. And I was going to be writing my matric exams in 1987 which left me with mixed feelings, I want to assure you. Was on the one hand, I thought maybe I might get raptured before my matric exams, or my matric exams will be the great tribulation that I will have to go through. And I'm dead serious. <laughs> then in addition to that, my teacher told us, by the way, there is in Luxembourg a supercomputer that is named the Beast. And at that time, pick and pay introduced barcodes Barcodes into the shop, and I was wondering, am I going to have a barcode tattooed to my forehead in order to be able to buy and sell? So, you know, I was, I was, I was, really, I was really, really scared, you know. But then 1988 came along, and 1988 went, you know. So, so what Al Lindsay was writing about, you know, is exactly the same thing that if you are familiar with the Left Behind series, um, what the Left Behind series is actually doing is just giving you a more modern version of dispensational theology. Now, um, there was this movie, it's, um, you know, you, you, you're not familiar with it, but you know, when I was growing up in the 1970s, there was this movie which is kind of the 1970s version of the Left Behind series. It's called The Thief in the Night, and it's based on a passage in 1 Thessalonians 5.2 um, where the Apostle Paul says, the coming of the Lord or the day of the Lord will be like a thief in the night. You know, and I had an uncle who owned a projector. I don't even know what a projector is. It's a 1970s version of a data projector. You know, it's kind of a miniature version of the projectors they actually use still in movies today. You know, but it was a mobile one. You could travel, you could travel around with it. And he used to go and rent this movie, A Thief in the Night, you know, which was the 1970s version of that. And he would take my dad and myself along, and we went around Friday nights to youth groups, you know, because he was concerned that youth must come to know Christ. So he would play The Thief in the Night. And many people, you know, came into the kingdom of God through that movie. You know, either they were compelled by the message or they were scared <laughs> and therefore came into the kingdom. Yeah, so, so that is, so that is how, how I grew up. Now, just very quickly, what is dispensationalism? So dispensationalism says that one could take the Bible from the book of Genesis through to the book of Revelation, and you can divide that time period into seven distinct periods in history where God has acted. So... Um, you can start from man before the flood, 
Um, you know, right there at creation, after the flood, the time of Abraham, the time of Moses, will therefore, which covers the Old Testament and significant periods of the Old Testament, becomes the dispensation of the law. The New Testament period, obviously, is Jesus. So that's the dispensation of Christ or the dispensation of the church. Then will come the tribulation. Then will come the kingdom. So it became a scheme you know, in terms of how one could read or understand the Bible. And in that way, you know, you would be able to maybe predict the end. So that certain events after Christ, especially during this dispensation over here, could be of importance, especially what happens to, to Israel. So once again, there in summary is what it is all about. So then, let, let's ask a few questions. Um, I'm posing these questions rhetorically, and I'm going to be answering them, and, uh, and maybe you'll have your questions of your own. So based upon this, are we at the end times? Well, there's a, there's a sense in which we have to say yes. You know, because all of those four schemes does anticipate the coming of Christ, you know. But how close we are, at, we are to the actual end depends, as you have seen, on your interpretive and your millennial position. You know, so, so people will be convinced, you know, based upon either the way in which they have been taught or the way they have been educated within this um, and will wrestle with these passages and they will come up with one of four positions in which they might say we are very close or we are at the very end or we might not be as close as what we think. But then the question is asked, but you know, what about those other things that Jesus spoke about? You know, called the signs of the times. You know, and there will be wars and rumors of war. And there will be earthquakes. You know, and there will be all these disastrous things happening. And especially things around the Middle East. You know, and so are those not the actual signs? And so, so couldn't we actually be able to predict? You know, and some people have. But we always need to remember that passage in Matthew chapter 24 verse 36. That Jesus himself said, but about the day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven or the Son, but only the Father. And so we need to remind ourselves that, in, that everybody who ever attempted to predict, like our Lindsay, and there have been others. You know, the founder of the Seventh-day Adventists shared her predictions. You know, the founder of even Scientology had their predictions, you know, and so and so forth, you know. Um, there have always been people who have attempted to say, that is the date, you know. So whether it is the Mayan calendar, you know. Um, I mean, I can remember, you know, so I told you the story of the 1980s, you know. So come along the 1990s, and I feel a call to ministry to go to seminary. And so I say... I'm going to leave what I'm doing, and I'm going into seminary, and I'm scheduled to start at seminary in January 1991, and guess what happened? Saddam Hussein, if you've never heard the name before, decided he was the leader of Iraq. He decided to invade Kuwait, and disaster broke out in the Middle East. Now, some of you are too young to remember that, but I remember that. Scud missiles, you know, flying in from um, Iraq to Kuwait and even into Israel. And then the question was, is war going to break out between them? You know, and people started asking the question, is this conflict, which was a major conflict in the Middle East, is it going to be the end times? And I was like, Lord, 
Why must I go to seminary if you're going to be coming soon, you know? Um, okay, look, maybe I must go and prepare to be one of the two witnesses of the book of Revelation, you know. <laughs> I don't know, you know, why I must go to seminary, you know, maybe even it's just for that. But yeah, you know, um, and, and even after that, you know, 2012, according to the Mayan calendar, <laughs> you know, anybody who has ever attempted to predict the end has always failed. And so the question is, is the current conflict in the Middle East not a good sign of Christ's imminent return? So let's quickly go there. Let's talk about this idea, as I've already mentioned, about conflict in the Middle East. There has always been conflict in the Middle East. <laughs> and the minute you think one is worse and nothing could get worse, it does. Um, I'm also getting tired. I think I need some water. Worse, worse. Yeah, that's it. It's working now. Conflict in the Middle East. So as a result of this, this is obviously divided Christians. You know, because a lot of Christians feel that we need to position ourselves in a particular way when it comes to the Middle East in terms of our relationship to Israel. Um, and as you have seen, you know, coming to an answer depends upon your interpretation of Scripture, those prophetic texts, but as well as the land texts, verses about the Bible that seems to maybe say that the land has been given to Israel forever. You know, and therefore, that compels a lot of Christians to say, therefore, we must be in support of Israel and stand with him. And obviously, the most popular approach of this is dispensational theology, you know. So when you see a lot of stuff, and I say this with respect, coming from America on television stations, you know, what you are hearing is basically an approach that comes from that perspective, you know, which is, which is still a very, very influential approach. Um, and as you can see, you know, as I explained earlier, this is just another picture of that. The place of Israel is very important because they believe that it is during this period of the tribulation that there is going to be a restoration of the Jews to Palestine. So the minute there's going to be the Jews returning back to their homeland, um, that's going to be followed by the conversion of the remnant of Israel and the temple being rebuilt and, you know, everything. I mean, there are videos on YouTube about this, you know, that they are ready. They've already got the priests lined up. They've got all the temple goodies. They just need to decide where that temple must be built. Is it on the location of the Dome of the Rock? Is it at Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is also within that general temple precinct, or is it somewhere else close by? You know, and so there's debates about that at the moment. You can pick up some of those 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 videos on, 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 on YouTube. I, I always draw people to a caution about that because um, I think we need to take seriously what is actually happening in the Bible around what the Bible teaches about Israel. So, so, so let, me, let me give you a perspective that you might not have heard before. And a lot of this actually centers around one of those other books of the Bible, the book of Romans, particularly chapters 9 through to 11, um, that says something that is seen as kind of the linchpin um, that should drive Christians to be in support of Israel and to understand that what's happening in the Middle East is one of the major signs of the end times. 
And this is how Romans chapter um, 9, verse 11, uh, chapter, until chapter 11, um, let me extract a few verses from verse 25 to 27. The apostle Paul writes to the church at Rome and says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. You know, Pastor Craig just mentioned something this morning about this idea of the full number, you know, because we, we're going through the book of Daniel, you know. So if you have time, you know, don't watch YouTube videos first. Listen to Pastor Craig's series on the book of Daniel. Um, and then he says, and in this way all Israel will be saved. So for, for, for many people, this is the idea, you know, that the idea of Israel coming to salvation is the sign of the end, because as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. You will turn godlessness away from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sin. So, so that becomes a verse that kind of sparks the idea, you know, that it's when Israel is going to be saved that the end will come, especially all Israel um, being, being saved. Now, just very quickly, you know, why is it that God would center his story and his plan of salvation right there within what we call the Middle East? You know, in that small piece of real estate over there that's about the size of the Kruger National Park, you know, very tiny. However, you know, in calling Abraham out of Sumeria, ancient Sumeria, Ur of the Chaldees, in fact, Abraham might actually have been the great, 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 great grandfather of Saddam Hussein, if you think about it carefully, you know. So he comes from there, and God takes him there to actually place him within this land bridge in the ancient world, because anybody who wanted to go anywhere between the great civilizations of Egypt and the ones that emerged out of Mesopotamia, you know, like Babylon, Syria, Persia, etc., uh, they would always traverse that section over there. So God, is, as it were, I think was placing them center stage. So there's Abraham trekking, and he ends up over there. However, in Genesis chapter 12, there's this promise that's given to him, a multi-layered promise which includes land. Now let's quickly run forward. This land becomes known by many different names in the Bible. The land of Canaan, the land of Israel, um, the Holy Land, Philistine, Syria, or even during the time of the Romans, the Roman Emperor Hadrian became so frustrated by the many rebellions that the Jews rose up against them that he decided, I'm now going to call you by your proverbial worst enemy, the Philistines. And so he decided that this area will now be called Syria, Palestine, or the name that stuck was Palestine. So Palestine actually means Philistine. So that's what he, what he called all of them. Um, and those were the Philistines that arrived over there um, that settled in an area that today is actually Gaza, by and large. And then there's the modern state of Israel, um, or what is today the contested titles of Israel and Palestine. I think the key to understanding the story of Israel comes in the story of Jacob. Remember what happens? You know, Jacob, um, who has to leave his father's home, you know, Isaac, because, you know, he falls into sibling rivalry, squabbles with his brother Esau, 
And so Esau wants to kill him. And so Jacob leaves. He goes to his uncle Laban. He wants to get a wife. He actually gets two for the price of one. Now he has to work double the time. Um, but eventually he makes his way back. He makes his way back. And while he makes his way back, he stops off and he has an encounter. An encounter with God. And God does him a, I don't know if it's a slam dunk or is it clothesline, WWE style. No, but, but he, he, he has to walk with a limp after that. And God says to him, I'm going to change your name. You're no longer going to be called Jacob, you're going to be called Israel. Very significant, why? Because the name Israel means one who strives with God. So what God is doing, he's setting in place an idea as to who his people actually are that unfolds in the Bible, in which if you read it, you know, there were many people that they fought with and fought against, but many of these people were actually their family, were actually their cousins, like the Ammonites and the Edomites. You know, they, they were the descendants of Lot, you know, which was Abraham's um, nephew, you know. So a lot of these people that they kind of fought against was actually their family. So one big family squabble from time immemorial. But that kingdom divided, which is significant because 10 tribes in the north gets destroyed by the Syrians in 722 BC. The southern kingdom, they get invaded by the Babylonians in 586 BC. The ten tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel becomes known as the lost tribes of Israel. I think there's significance in that. In which the two southern tribes, the tribe of Judah by and large, and Benjamin a little bit, they become the remnant of Israel. And they are the ones that gets taken into, into Babylon. You see, if you take a look at the history of the Middle East. You will see it's a history of conflict. There's always been conflict, and enough of them to ask the question, is this conflict not a sign of the end? Um, which takes us even post-New Testament into the post-New Testament period under the Romans, during the time of the Byzantine Empire, during the time of the Islamic era, which became eventually known as the Ottoman period, um, into the time of the British mandate over Israel, there has always been conflict. Until this man, a man by the name of Theodore Herzl, who was an um, Austrian journalist, was saying, when is the persecution of the Jews going to stop? Don't we maybe need a homeland? He gathered a number of people and they said, let's find a place to go and live. They even considered Uganda, by the way as a place to go and settle. Eventually they decided the best place to go to is to go back to that land that God had promised Abraham. And then from um, the early 1900s, there were a lot of Jews who were coming from all over the world entering into a land that was inhabited by Jews and by Palestinians and by other people. And that that is how a lot of the, the conflict started. Now, you know, in, in, in dealing with the story, you know, it's often presented as a Christian versus Muslim thing or a Jew versus Muslim thing. Let me say to you, the whole story is more complicated than that because a lot of people get shocked when I tell them there are Palestinian Christians, by the way, <laughs> you know. Um, and so we need to be careful in assuming that God is calling us to defend Israel 
when we've got Christian brothers and sisters on the other side of the fence in Palestine. You know, here are two of them um, that I say to people, if you want to have a Christian Palestinian perspective as to what's happening in the Middle East, especially what's happening now, go and listen to these people. Um, that person I've never met, that person I've met, Dr. Johanna Katanacho, is a Palestinian who lives in Israel, and he's a Baptist minister, um, and he has written a lot on the theology of the land from a Palestinian perspective. You can find him on YouTube. Um, and that whole series, Christ at the Checkpoint, is talking about the plight that Christian Palestinians are experiencing even now in the current conflict. There's only three churches that's legally allowed in Gaza. One of them is a Baptist church, by the way. Um, and um, the tragedy is that that Baptist church was bombed by the Israelis, you know, given their response to what's happening with Hamas. Um, and the lady who served for many years as the piano player in that church was assassinated by an Israeli sniper. So when things like this happen, we have to ask ourselves, you know, are we here to actually take sides, you know, or is there more happening? What is happening in Romans chapter 9? Well, Romans chapter 9 is teaching us, I believe, the summary as to what a biblical understanding as to Israel is all about. That Israel is not about an ethnicity. Israel is about a family. A family that stretches beyond ethnicity. So what the Apostle Paul does in Romans chapter 9 through to 11, he uses a picture of that of a olive tree, a wild olive tree. And he says, think about our history. We are all founded and rooted in Abraham, in which out of Abraham they, descend, they arose people. And these people are Israelites, the people of God, the people who strive with God. But not all of them ended up being God's people because many of them got rejected. So take a look over there. Unbelieving descendants of Jacob gets ostracized. Remember, even as they entered into the promised land, because the people were disobedient, they couldn't go into the promised land. It was eventually only Joshua and Caleb who could do that. You know, and so you have a new generation of people who come in, and it is those who believe that become the true Israel, including believing Gentiles, who uses the image, gets engrafted into the olive tree. Now, this he explains after establishing the context for the message of salvation. Let me see if I can do this in two minutes. In chapter 1 through to 4 in the book of Romans, the apostle Paul emphasizes that there's only one gospel message, only one way you can come to faith um, and be pleased by God, and that is through Jesus. The gospel message of Jesus is to all people through faith, both Gentiles and Jew. He says, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but it's for everyone right? And so they become part of a multi-ethnic family of Abraham through this whole theological idea called justification by faith. So he's trying to point out there that it's not only the people who are the seed of Abraham, who is the true seed of Abraham, but everyone who by faith accepts Christ, you become also justified just like Abraham. Chapter 5 through to 8, he says, we become part of a new humanity, we are all descendants of Adam who, as a result of Adam's sin and Eve's sin, um, you know, have been separated from God. It is through the second Adam, who is Jesus, that we come into this family. And then in chapter 9 through to 11, he uses the illustration of an olive tree to ultimately show who is true Israel. 
in which he says within those passages that it's not being ethnic Israel that makes you an Israelite, but by faith that you become an Israelite. So in summary of that passage, he's saying there's always been a remnant in Israel. Not every ethnic Israelite is a true Israelite. Read chapter 9, verse 6, and you'll see that. Unbelieving ethnic Israels are not true Israelites of faith. Gentiles become true Israelites through faith in Jesus because we are engrafted. All Israel, the Israel who will be saved, are those, both Jew and Gentile, who accept Jesus by faith. And so part of the problem is that there's a fundamental misunderstanding of this passage which makes people think and believe we must therefore take sides. What then is the concluding challenge? I want to suggest a few things. We maybe need to, and if you are open to this, to rethink and to reevaluate your understanding of the prophetic text and their actual significance. To be careful not to take political sides. You know, either Israeli or Palestinian, there's terrible things happening on both sides. But especially not to confuse the idea of biblical Israel with the modern state of Israel. There are two separate ideas. We must be concerned as Christians for the salvation of all the non-Christian people of the Middle East. Our duty is to share the gospel with all of them. And let me tell you these things happening in the background. I know a Dr. Salim Munaya, who is a Palestinian. He is a born-again believer. He is an, an ordained minister. He works with Jews. Jewish rabbis who also believe that the current conflict is one in which there's wrong on both sides. And you know what they are doing? Working towards reconciliation. And he isn't the only one. There are many like that. In fact, there are many Jews today who don't agree with what um, the current Israeli government is doing, especially if you're an Orthodox Jew. So we must pray for the peace of Jerusalem, but that includes Gaza and the West Bank as well. Um, and then finally, I think we need to seek to minister to the spiritual and social needs of the people who are caught in the conflict as part of our Christian moral duty. Why? Because both Jews and Palestinians need the Lord. Flate, flate, my story is eight. 